Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Erin Stewart Malden. She is Assistant Professor of History at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, and the author of Unredeemed Land, an Environmental History of Civil War and Emancipation in the Cotton South, which came out just a couple of weeks ago from Oxford University Press. Dr. Malden, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Wow, what an exceptional book. Um, this was you know, personally the book whose release I've been anticipating the most this year, and it did not disappoint. So much about Unredeemed Land is, is kind of new, is very new. I, I consider it the first environmental history of the Civil War era. That is examining not only the military history of you know, the early 1860s, but also the social and economic world of the 19th century South from the antebellum period through the Reconstruction era and beyond, kind of in the tradition, chrono- chronological kind of approach of so much of the great non-environmental histories of the of Civil War America. Um, but despite its crackling newness, you actually begin you actually begin at the outset by taking up some quite old questions, questions that historians have grappled with for generations. Could you start by telling our listeners what some of those animating questions were and why you found the answers scholars had offered in the past to be insufficient? Sure. Um, So this project began with what I consider one of the biggest debates in 19th century Southern history, which is, as you intimated, really the place of the American Civil War in the longer trajectory of the Southern economy and Southern history. Um, And more specifically, I was interested in the ways the Civil War changed, or for that matter, did not change, uh, the course of the Southern agricultural economy, um, which, as you said, is a story that's much bigger than 1861 to 1865. So if you look at the period as a whole, we know that flourishing in a few areas. And these regions also had correspondingly high densities of slave owners. But on the whole, really, you have white Southerners growing a mix of crops and really raising livestock as part of that model. And so despite the lure of rising cotton prices, most farmers are preferring a safety first model over total market integration. And then you have the Civil War. And for four years, you have agriculture in the South restructured for wartime. And you have production suffering from drought and crop changes and foraging and battles and emancipation and occupation. And then during Reconstruction, Right, which is a label we usually give to the political events of the day, but really I think of as a process of rebuilding following the Civil War. We see the relative agricultural diversity of that antebellum landscape disappearing. And so the paradox is that during a time after a war, when food insecurity is rampant, And cotton prices, while artificially high, begin dropping year after year. You have keen cotton enticing landowners and yeoman farmers and recently freed slaves in all areas of the South 
to eschew that safety first approach in favor, not of food, but of cotton. And then you have the longer story, which is the ever-expanding cotton kingdom and the coercive crop arrangements and the poverty it engendered um, coming to form the basis of this agricultural system that existed well into the 20th century and is really associated with sort of not only 19th, but early 20th century Southern history, right? The, The sharecropping system of cotton farming. So this brings us back to the central questions of the book, right? So if that's the standard narrative, my questions are, why did so many Southern farmers rely on continuous cotton cultivation after the war? And what caused this shift in attitudes towards self-sufficiency in farming areas that were known for their relative crop diversity before the war? And If cotton was very famously the only crop that would pay, why were its cultivators so poor? And so to sort of step back from the questions of the book to really how it fits into sort of the larger historiography, you can say that everyone agrees that the Civil War marks a watershed moment in the history of agriculture in the South, but there's not really a consensus as to why. So to give you the broader outlines of of very vast literature, right? In the past, scholars have tried to answer uh, these questions um, and this paradox in a variety of ways. And so a lot have uh, charted the war's physical and economic devastation. And part of this literature also showed how the war created new lending protocols and gave rise to a predatory credit system after the war, right? The crop lien legislation. And then you have other scholars employing uh, what you might call sociocultural perspectives, right? Uh, Concentrating on planters' monopoly of resources, uh, the destruction of the rural white yeomanry, uh, particularly in upland areas amid cotton production and the rise of sharecropping. And then, of course, more recently, you have a group of historians doing really important work to elevate the experiences and the agency of Black Southerners, right? So illuminating freed people's role in altering plantation operations uh, during the post-war period. But in my thinking, all of these works frame the relationship of what really is a story of land and labor during the Civil War era in either social or economic terms. So what happens if the discussion of Southern agriculture begins with the land, right? Because, you know, all of these things that happen during 19th century Southern agriculture and its development, the expansion of cotton production and the rise of sharecropping and the way that labor relations evolve in response to these things, all of that took place within an environmental context that shaped individual actions as well as broader structural forces. And while environmental history isn't new any longer, right, and the contention that natural elements such as climate and soils shape human actions isn't necessarily novel, it hasn't really been applied in a way that comments on the creation of that post-war stranglehold that cotton had on the rural South by the end of the Reconstruction era. So 
What my book is trying to do is get at the relationship between farmers and the thing that they were most concerned about, which was their land, primarily by using the insights of the natural sciences to re-examine this crucial moment in 19th century Southern history. You begin that project in the first chapter by offering readers a very useful primer on the ecology of antebellum agriculture. And you write that the South's climate and soils presented, uh, what you say, both opportunities and limitations to Southern farmers. So could you tell us what some of those opportunities and limitations were and how did they help to shape what agriculture looked like on the eve of the war? Sure. So although it's sort of a joke in Southern history, to refer to Ulrich B. Phillips' advice for scholars to, quote, begin by discussing the weather, for that has been the chief agency in making the South distinctive, end quote, right? Um, And it's sort of an inside joke among us, uh, particularly Southern environmental historians. Uh, But to some extent, he was right, because climate and other environmental factors acted in some ways as a causative force that made a specific set of land use practices centered on extensive farming, a rational economic choice across the region as a whole. So um, most Southern states fall within what we call the humid subtropical climatic zone. And um, having recently moved to Florida, I suddenly understand what that means. So there's a long summer across the region, fairly consistent heat and humidity. And anyone who lives down here, um, and not just Florida, but Alabama, Tennessee, North Carolina, wherever, um, you know that spring and summer days are frequently interrupted by what weather.com calls scattered thunderstorms, but what are colloquial called gully washers, these brief, scattered, violent downpours. And so most of the region is well watered, receiving anywhere between 40 inches of rain per year, some closer to 60 inches of rain, although some areas sort of have an issue with summer and autumn droughts. And winter in this climatic zone can be just as unpredictable as summer. Um, Sometimes it'll be brutally cold and other times brief and quickly forgotten. Uh, So as far as climate goes, on the whole, the warm long growing season and generally mild winters are well suited to many forms of agriculture and a wide range of crops. But that weather has also had effect on other aspects of the environment, such as soils. Um, The South escaped the last glaciation. And so states in the humid subtropical zone have particularly old soils compared to other places in the U.S., And so the exposure of millions of years of weathering and leaching by that rainfall and that heat I just mentioned have made most southern soils acidic, low in nutrients, and easily eroded. Now, this, of course, doesn't apply to the alluvial soils, right, of the Mississippi River Valley, but outside of that area, this is generally true. And many southern soils are heavily laced with clay with high levels of aluminum and iron hydroxides, lower percentages of organic material and base elements like calcium than soils in some other places in the US. 
And this isn't really something that you say at the beginning of the chapter and sort of leave it there. Um, Mm. The age of the soils is a point of great significance because strongly weathered materials are a poor source of nutrients for plant growth. If you live in the Midwest, you farm younger soils and they still weather rapidly enough to release an abundance of nutrients every year if properly managed. But that's not true of Southern soils. Furthermore, Southern soils are also highly erosive. Clay soils wash away easily and the region experiences intense rain events. And the topography of most of the South is not really that flat. And so all of those things together encourage erosion. So if you think about it, taken together, the climate and the soil conditions of the Southern states created opportunities, right, in that it's at first a relatively fertile region with a long growing season, but also considerable physical limitations and natural limits on the development of intensive commercial agriculture, particularly like that practiced in the North or in Europe, which are mixed crop regimes based on grains livestock raising, and dairying that are relatively well adapted to continuous cultivation, right? Where you farm a plot of land and you farm it continuously over generations. That makes little ecological and this little economic sense when you're talking about the 19th century South. For instance, forage and fodder crops and the grasses and the hay that Northerners fed to their livestock did not grow well in the acidic soils down here. And so you have mediocre soils lacking in essential nutrients that make early forms of crop rotation and fertilizers inefficient. So if intensive commercial agriculture doesn't really make sense in the natural context of this region, under a different set of land use practices, however, agricultural production flourished. And we know that because of some of the wealthiest states right before the war are in the South. Extensive land use practices that include shifting cultivation, free range animal husbandry, and the use of slaves or hired labor in what I would call land maintenance strategies like ditch digging and manure hauling, fence repair, etc allowed farmers to circumvent the environmental limitations of their region. These extensive land use practices could only keep agriculture profitable for so long because farmers needed fresh soils. They needed larger tracts of wooded land. They needed a labor force to carve new fields from old forests. And so expansion is crucial to extensive land uses success. So I think if you consider the environmental and agricultural utility inherent in the expansion of the slave South during this period and the extensive land use system it supported, you are able to sort of better illuminate some of the practical considerations, particularly for poorer Southerners, that fueled debates over the restriction of slavery during the secession crisis of the late antebellum period. And so you have these environmental conditions shaping farming and that farming system crucial to the success of the region as a whole.
then the book then takes those ecological insights into a examination of the war itself. And to say that the Civil War took a devastating toll on Southern agriculture and the Southern economy is nothing new. There have been people saying that since the war ended in both scholarly and polemical contexts and in both good and bad faith. Um, but you're arguing something much more interesting. You're saying that we shouldn't just talk about the Civil War as a disaster for the South. We also need to see how it you know, it turned what was already a slow-moving disaster into a fast-moving one, how it kind of sped the arrival of a coming collapse. Would you explain that for us? Sure. Just because these common land use practices were suited to the environmental constraints of the Southern landscape doesn't mean that Southern farmers before 1861 were environmental stewards, not by any means. The pace of environmental change was in many areas, frankly, unsustainable. Um, and if you read sort of primary sources of the antebellum period, particularly from northern observers, you can see the ways that soil and timber and wildlife resources throughout the South were suffering enormously during the century of cultivation before the Civil War, what you call a slow-moving disaster, right? In fact, there were white planters all over the South, um, many of whom became Confederate firebrands, right, that we would dub agricultural reformers who feared that the rate at which Southerners were exhausting the natural landscape would lead to an agricultural crisis that would undermine the region's most central institution, that of slavery. And so because farmers were able to keep expanding their agricultural system along an almost continuously moving frontier, the environmental and agricultural collapse that some of these planters feared never fully materialized, at least not before the war. What the Civil War does is drastically alter the rhythms of Southern agricultural life by accelerating pre-war environmental change, by removing necessary resources and labor, and above all, preventing expansion. So in the chapter you're referring to, I talk about how battles and the construction of defense works noticeably increase soil erosion and woodland clearance. And the fact that land abandonment due to occupation or confiscation was widespread and provided a multi-year fallow for hundreds of thousands of acres, but also increasing soil erosion in other places. Armies foraging and impressment of livestock and slaves and materials also had a very diffuse impact, touching most farms in some way during the conflict. Now, one of the major points that I try to make in this chapter is that the way that armies in the Civil War acted were no different from most other armies at most other times in most other wars, at least before the 20th century. Um, but the environmental context in which antebellum Southern agriculture developed made the region particularly vulnerable to these very standard military practices like foraging, like defense building. So at the macro level, I think understanding that agroecological baseline in 1861 
helps us better understand why the South was so affected by the Civil War and why assumptions regarding the destructiveness or the devastation of the conflict have persisted for so long, as you say, in both good and bad faith. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples of ways that sort of pre-war farming um, sort of translates into effects during the war. Great. So the proliferation of free-range animal husbandry in the South, where farmers let their animals roam um, a majority of the year in woods and common lands across the region, meant that for soldiers marching down the road or through the woods or across the field, livestock ranging freely would be easier to steal, right? And if a field's fences were destroyed uh, because they were taken down to be used as defenses or burned as fuel wood, what livestock were still out there had full access to farmers' cropland, thus reducing the food available for Confederates but providing food for Union livestock. And so the reliance of Southerners on extensive land use created um, in sort of a a Richard Tucker, Edmund Russell-inspired pun, uh, created a natural ally for the Union and a natural enemy, ironically, for the Confederates themselves. Furthermore, you know, the war stops farmers from being able to use many of these methods um, that they used during the antebellum period to solve issues of soil fertility or soil erosion, right? And those become no longer feasible due to the consumption of woodland by troops, the loss of labor through conscription and slave emancipation. So you see all over the place, military operations exacerbated pre-existing weaknesses in the Southern system in a way that had significant implications for both Union and Confederate logistics and supply. So I think that even without the war, Southern farmers would have eventually exhausted the ability of the region's landscape to support extensive agriculture. And that's one of the reasons why you see sort of these imperialist imaginings amongst Confederates uh, for the ways that their region could expand to the West or to the South. But the Civil War ensured that outcome sooner rather than later. And so war and then emancipation unmasked those environmental limits that were in place, but the the effects of which had long been delayed during the antebellum era by territorial expansion. And when the war ends, there's this general sense that this is a, there's a chance now to really start again with Southern agriculture, to remake it. Um, and in the new form of agriculture that many agricultural reformers, northerners, southerners, hoped would take hold in the South after the war, livestock were to be, um, I think in your words, you use the ecological term, a, a keystone species. Right. And, and why, you know, why was that in their minds? And then why did that prove to be so troublesome? Um, could you give us sort of a, a hog's eye or catalyzed <laughs> view of reconstruction? Sure, I'd like to try. Um, <laughs> so, um, There was a remarkable sense of continuity in the ideas for how to improve agriculture in the South between the antebellum and the postbellum periods. Regardless of what side of the war you're talking about, agricultural publications and reformers and uh, agricultural societies advocated 
that what farmers needed to do was grow a range of crops centered on subsistence and above all to raise enough livestock to feed their families and laborers, to graze that livestock on pasture, house them in barns to protect them from the elements, and then collect their manure and use it to replenish the soil, right? To give operations a sense of permanence, that white picket fence look, and treat a few acres well over a long period of time rather than what it seems like Southerners were doing, which was, you know, farming a few acres here and then moving on to another plot of land. And so reformers were basically espouting uh, Reformers were basically espousing uh, these tenets of intensive agriculture, uh, both before and after the war. And for them, intensification and improvement went hand in hand. But the problem after the war ends is that intensive agriculture formed a kind of deformed analog to this hypothetical ideal farming operation because livestock the essential element in the intensive system, livestock were becoming less common on farms. For one thing, the Civil War significantly reduces animal populations through foraging, through death, through overuse, right? Particularly in areas where military operations were significant. So, If you're talking about on average, uh, the states of the Confederacy lost something like 20% of their horses during the war, 20% of their cattle, uh, 30% of their hogs. And, you know, there were considerable variations state to state and animal to animal, but that's just some rough estimates. And so one of the most immediate consequences of livestock shortages was reduced availability of meat for what Uh, sources called home consumption, right, as well as rations for laborers or ex-slaves. And you see the prices of provisions spike, not just from speculation, but also from genuine shortages. And so the price of pork, for instance, was described as unprecedented and exorbitant. And that burdened farmers and planters with additional expenses that ate away at their profit margin. And of course, there were regions where a lack of self-sufficiency in meat production was a longstanding problem. And the war's reduction of livestock through raiding and impressment not only exacerbated this trend, but transformed the South's reliance on outside sources for agricultural necessities from something that looked like standard market integration to a truly impoverishing, impressive, and oppressive, um, an impoverishing arrangement, especially for freedmen whose subsistence relied on rations provided by or purchased from landlords. But in the book, I also try to uh, work through maybe some other factors that conspired to keep livestock herds in the South smaller than they were before the war, besides just sort of direct consumption um, on the home front or the battlefield. For instance, uh, changes to farmers' material circumstances might have prevented them from replacing their stock or selling their hogs or cows for cash. 
Um, although if you rely on that explanation, it would be reasonable to assume that numbers of livestock in the South would eventually rebound. Um, but instead, livestock populations continued to shrink. Um, and during my research, I, I sort of stumbled upon this interesting side project on a, a series of animal diseases that were actually introduced to or spread throughout the South by uh, army trains and supply depots during the Civil War, including hog cholera, which is um, a disgusting disease, actually. <laughs> that uh, affects hogs uh, through its eradication in 1978. Um, there were semi-annual epizootics that occurred uh, during the war uh, and in the wake of war, sometimes, you know, every year, every other year, every five years. Um, and these keep hog numbers low and also give agricultural reformers and USDA officials sort of what might be loosely termed a medical justification for either penning livestock on farms that's making them more expensive to keep and sometimes out of the range of poor farmers' um, ability to keep them. And then also um, sort of landlords medical justification for not allowing sharecroppers or tenants, white or black, to keep livestock on the farm. Now, what's ironic about hog collar, of course, is that keeping hogs in those beautiful little enclosures that Northerners like so much, rather than allowing them to range in the woods, allowed the disease to spread more easily, but they did not know that at the time. And so as livestock populations shrank or failed to rebound after the war due to disease, or individual decisions to buy meat elsewhere, um, the result was an increasing reliance on commercial fertilizers. And although the liberal application of fertilizers to keep land in cultivation, instead of continuously shifting to new ground, was in fact a hallmark of that intensive agricultural system that reformers so desired, the result wasn't a healthy, prosperous agricultural landscape full of, you know, small landholders and uh, Jeffersonian uh, farmers. Um, instead, you have sort of a, a capital intensive system developing where in order to engage in planting cotton, you had to purchase the provisions and the fertilizers you needed to plant cotton. And so people ended up planting their money and unless they had significant land holdings, seeing very little return on that at the end of the year. Chapter four uh, turns to the effects of emancipation, and destruction of slavery. And, you know, it's not uncommon to hear some scholars and activists imagine ruefully that, you know, if only a robust program of land redistribution had been at the heart of federal policy, they had broken up the plantations into small parcels for families of freed people, mm -hmm. that then African-Americans in the South would have achieved economic autonomy in, in much greater numbers and much more quickly than they did. Your book isn't concerned with that question directly, um, but I th your findings really cast considerable doubt on that claim. And I wondered if you could sketch out for us, you know, what happened ecologically on plantations in the post-war era? And, and how does it suggest that access to land alone could not deliver prosperity to those formerly enslaved. Sure. So I want to back up just a little bit first. Um, 
The role of slaves in the antebellum plantation system um, was obviously crucial to the ability of white planters to be able to um, make money, right? And white planters' ability to deploy slave labor beyond the normal growing season um, was a large part of that system because slaves not only cultivated the crop, but you also had them performing land maintenance, particularly during what's called the lay-by season or slack time. And so slaves are ditching fields and filling gullies, applying fertilizer, fencing, refencing, refencing again, uh, <laughs> draining waterways, uh, clearing new ground. All of these are labor-intensive, time-consuming, and oftentimes require the concerted effort of many people at once. But all of them, all of those tasks, as backbreaking as they were, um, had ecological value, right? So ditches slow soil erosion. Ditches prevent standing water and crop rows, which is particularly bad for cotton. Uh, fences protected plants from roving livestock. Um, felling trees and clearing new ground restored nutrients to the soil and allowed planters to fallow older, exhausted fields. But after emancipation, there was great confusion as to the way that ex-slaves should be treated and paid for their work on farms and plantations. What counts as crop cultivation, right? Does ditching a field count as part of the cultivation of the crop, planter might say yes, ex-slave's going to say no, right? <laughs> that's, that's work preparatory to the next year's crop, right? That's general farm maintenance that has nothing to do with the cotton in the ground. And so contradictory ideas of free labor between landowners and freed people made land maintenance specifically uh, as well as the just day-to-day -day autonomy of farm workers, the subject of intense dispute. Um, and this was not true just in the South, but if you look really at any post-emancipation society across the global South, you see the same questions popping up. White planters tried to shape contract labor to look as much like slavery as possible. And so if you look at sort of the evolution of the role of um, contract laborers on farms between, say, 1865 and 1875, 1880, you see a shift, right? So at the, the very earliest labor contracts, uh, they often include clauses related to work beyond cultivating the crop, like digging or repairing ditches or removing stumps from new ground or filling gullies or collecting manure. And these initial contracts also usually applied to a group of freedmen rather than individuals or individual families, particularly on cotton farms. And so a group contract typically meant collective labor or gang labor. And um, even if it wasn't a group contract, then farms or plantations would often continue to organize ex-slaves in squads or gangs uh, in order to be supervised in their work, um, as well as having um, an overseer continue a system of deductions for infractions. And obviously, you know, the terms of these sorts of arrangements completely failed to satisfy um, what freedom was supposed to mean, 
to ex-slaves, right? And laborers resented conditions which required them to spend evenings digging ditches and splitting rails or having someone look over your shoulder instead of having your own plot of land. And so over time, through a variety of strategies, and we can talk about agency if you want to, but um, ex-slaves' efforts over time precipitate a noticeable shift in labor arrangements, as well as a shift in the ways that plantations are physically organized between the end of the war and roughly 1880-ish. And so uh, the two main things that happen is that uh, agricultural laborers uh, substantially reduce the assumption of land maintenance work. And then they also you see um, a, a reduction in the number of group contracts and a rise in sort of a combination of sharecroppers, renters, wage laborers, um, working uh, anything from a small plot of land to you know, 100 or even 200 acres rented from a particular landowner. And so the decentralization of labor and the changing circumstances of land maintenance, while positive developments for freed people, significantly altered the physical landscape of plantations in ways that the Southern environment simply could not support. The antebellum plantation possessed a center of operations from which labor could be directed and planting could spread outward as shifting cultivation brought in new lands on a semi-annual basis, thus stabilizing erosion and stabilizing soil fertility. And then the woodland held sort of on the outskirts of plantations for future shifting cultivation allowed for free-range animal husbandry, and uh, particularly in a region which did not support meadow grasses. But after emancipation, you see these large plantations gradually fragmented. And I always think of the illustration, in fact, it's in the book, right, of the Barrow Plantation in Georgia. It's this famous image of um, where slaves versus ex-slaves lived on this one plantation in Georgia. And you'll see it in any sort of textbook explanation of sharecropping. So... In the antebellum period in 1860-ish, um, you have slaves existing in sort of slave quarters in one part of pl the plantation. And by 1880, you have sharecropper or tenant cabins scattered all across the farm. And while, you know, it was nice to direct your own labor on your own plot of land, individual farms that remain relatively static in their boundaries in order to support tenants and sharecroppers complicates the ability of farmers to clear new ground or graze stock. There's no easy way to shift your own acreage without running into or overlapping with someone else's plot. And so increasingly you see tenants and sharecroppers growing cotton on the same piece of land year after year without the option of using livestock raised on common lands for manure. And so this means that for a lot of tenants, fertilizer becomes a big source of debt. And the lack of land maintenance increases erosion, increases flooding, uh, the ravages of the cotton caterpillar. 
And so the physical reorganization of these plantations harmed freed people's ability to remain self-sufficient by also eliminating common spaces where they could have kept livestock or provision crops. And so you see cotton plantation counties looking at, you know, sort of the reduced need uh, for reserve woodland, and they begin to outlaw open-range animal grazing between 1865 and 1880 uh, due to a combination of concerns over the cost of fence repair, the reduction in shifting cultivation, as well as planters' fear that allowing free people access to subsistence agriculture uh, ultimately undermine labor control. So to sort of get back to the original question, um, there's no question that having access to owning land would have been the only first real step to Black economic independence. But I think you also needed the common land system to exist as it had before the Civil War so that African-Americans might have bought livestock, allowed them to cheaply range in the woods, traded their meat for provisions or goods or home consumption, and maintained a level of self-sufficiency. Um, but after the war, common land rights get entangled with racial control in ways that ultimately end in tragedy and dependence for ex-slaves. In the book's final chapter, you look at the movement of black and white Southerners within the region in the decades after the war. And you don't go so far as to call them environmental migrants. Right. And you note that there were lots of forces at work pushing and pulling people around. Um, but you did detect a correlation between what you call the patterns of environmental change and the patterns of internal migration in the South. So how do you explain that correlation and, and what were some of the ecological effects of the migration? So I don't go so far as to call them environmental migrants, uh, but in um, sort of talks since I wrote the book, um, a lot of other scholars have noted sort of the correlation between uh, my work as well as people who are fleeing post-war situations um, and who are refugees, right? Environmental refugees mm -hmm. in areas like Syria and other places like that, where sort of there has been an agricultural collapse as the result of a war and people move away from that area. And, and that's really true here. Um, so the elimination of subsistence practices, the destruction of farming through war, the transition into continuous cultivation and the subsequent rise of erosion and the outlawing of uh, grazing, all of these things played a significant role in pushing people into new patterns of migration, particularly African-Americans. Explanations for the shifting geography of agriculture during the post-Billum period rightly includes, uh, first, the opening of public lands through wartime legislative actions such as the Homestead Act. But I also think that environmental limits on profitable cultivation also pushed people out of older, more fragile agricultural landscapes of the former plantation belt and by 1880 into areas where not a lot of Southerners had previously lived. Black Southerners in particular sought new lives and greater economic opportunities in urban areas where freedom was freer and their labor was their own. And the outmigration of Southerners from uh, sort of these fragile landscapes 
as well as the out-migration of Black Southerners from rural spaces in the postbellum South, I think both illuminates the cumulative results of all of these ecological shifts that I talk about in the Cotton Belt, but also helps to explain why some Southern cities achieve such rapid growth during this period. So we're not talking millions of people. These are not great migration numbers, right? But population trends demonstrate that the number of African-Americans in urban or industrial areas within the South increased significantly between 1865 and 1880. Um, The Black population of Nashville, for instance, jumped something like 15%, Atlanta maybe at 24%. Um, And then, of course, I just moved from Birmingham, Alabama, um, which is an incredibly rich resource for studying this period and Mm -hmm. urban growth because Birmingham was created from scratch uh, in the 1870s and became known as the magic city due to its rapid population growth, thanks largely to a population of inexpensive African-American labor who were fleeing Uh, the Black Belt and North Central Alabama to work in the development of the limestone, iron ore, and coal mines around this recently established city. Um, And Birmingham becomes a center of iron and steel production thanks to that labor source. Um, If you look at it, you know, foreign immigration to the South was relatively small during this period. Uh, So it's really the availability of this cheap labor due to the out-migration from rural spaces that allow some of these places like Birmingham and Atlanta um, to either thrive during the New South or, in the case of Atlanta, rebuild so rapidly. You also have, uh, during a post-war South, and this is what has really gotten a lot of attention from environmental historians in the past who have studied the South, um, is the boom in extractive industries after the Civil War. So the railroad boom, the timbering boom, the mining boom, uh, all of these things that transformed the region after the war. Um, So the number of rail lines between 1865 and 1910 um, increases um, something like four or five fold. And then you have all of these new railroads opening up the pine forests of the South to logging companies or areas of the South previously uninhabitable to draining. And then you have mining work offering relatively decent wages to Southerners, black or white, Um, and sort of transforming the landscape of the South that way. And what's interesting is you see this in a lot of places that historians haven't typically looked for these sorts of stories before. So if you read the pension files of African-American vets or the WPA interviews with ex-slaves in the 1930s, you see these stories of migration um, and how the attractiveness of these extractive industries and their steady wages pulled thousands of individuals off of farms at least for a few years at a time. And those industries were primarily extractive in nature, which means that the environmental changes in the cotton belt are cascading into problems of clear cutting and runoff and pollution from mining and a host of other ecological shifts in the industrial South. In the time since Reconstruction, in the late 19th century and 
perhaps even down to the present, um, where else do you see some of the longer legacies of that environmental crisis that the Civil War helped deliver? So in my uh, one of my American surveys the other day, we were talking about the Great Depression and um, in the 1930s, FDR endorses and writes the forward to this big study of the South. And he calls the South the nation's number one problem region. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the pictures from Let Us Now Praise Famous Men or mm-hmm. – um, 40 acres and a steel mule, right? These photo essays from the Great Depression era, you can see a South that is stagnant, that is poor, that is underpaid, undereducated, underfed. Uh, no one has any shoes on, right? And these are sort of the the images that we are passed down and we assume um, have always been, right, for farming mm-hmm. in the South. Um, and really what happens is the events of the 1860s and 1870s presage the agroeconomic upheavals um, of the 1890s and set the stage for the region's stagnating rural economy as it existed through World War II. I mean, what gets a lot of attention is two things, right? Um, Populism and the boll weevil. Right. And these mm-hmm. both happen around the turn of the century, uh, turn of the 20th century, that is. So the spread of cotton capitalism along these newly built railroad lines into previously yeoman dominated areas caused the number of landowning farmers to spiral downward. And you see intense anger mounting in these piney woods counties as farmers blame middlemen such as merchants and railroad companies for the problems associated with cotton farming. And all that gets worse with the Panic of 1893. And so the distrust that builds over the course of the 1880s regarding agricultural conditions and the politicians and the merchants and the bankers who are not helping farmers grow into protest and results in the Southern populist movement. And while that was ultimately ephemeral, it's pointed to as this moment right, where people are rising up to try to address the matrix of farmers' concerns and agitating for local and national policy changes that might address some of these problems in the southern rural economy. And all of that is compounded by the arrival of the bull weevil, which I think appears um, in 1892. And it's the bull weevil is a pest. It is a small winged beetle with a snout, and it loves to munch on cotton leaves. And it first appeared from Mexico into Texas. And then over the next 20, 30 years, the weevil's range stretched across the former Confederacy. And I can't recommend enough uh, James uh, Geeson's Bull Weevil blues right the yeah. the uh, the book with the university of chicago press about sort of the lasting legacy of the bull weevil both as a cultural phenomenon and an ecological one and the bull weevil was you know put down it was a scourge of evil you know theodore roosevelt calls it um this wave of evil sweeping the south um and even that couldn't rein in the region's addiction to cotton um, and crop losses devastate a number of local economies and arguably sort of help spark the opening of the Great Migration, et cetera. And so populism and the boll weevil um, 
they're both widely accepted as moments when the region's environment and its farming economy are famously shaping political problems at the national level when non-human agents are contributing to human decisions regarding crop mixes or financial prospects or whether to stay in the South. Um, But again, I think it all goes back to the sort of issues that come out of the Civil War, that longer history of the Southern agricultural economy. Because I think that the inability of Southern farmers to revert to the environmental status quo of the pre-war period helps create the conditions and stoke the resentments that congeal in the populist movement much later and sort of make the outlines of the cotton South as they exist upon the bull weevil's arrival and sort of the South's um, sort of entrance into the national conversation as, you know, economic problem number one. I hope and I expect that you'll be slammed with requests to come and talk about this book uh, in the months ahead. When all of that calms down, Mm -hmm. uh, what will you turn your attention to next? So um, I've actually already turned my attention to other things um, (laughs) because, you know, this book started as this is obviously my dissertation. And um, when I started my dissertation project, uh, one of my advisors called it a kitchen sink project where I had thrown (laughs) literally everything in there and it took years to sort of narrow down the focus both geographically but thematically and temporally etc and and you know what I mean by this of course yes exactly and uh the dissertating process is is a lot of letting go of uh (laughs) sort of the genesis of other projects so I'm turning to the other half of this story which is the urban industrializing south during not quite the same period, but a little later. So the poverty and debt of post-war cotton farming that we sort of get to in this book, um, as we said, spurred tens of thousands of people to abandon rural spaces in the decades after the Civil War and find employment in these recently reconstructed cities, such as Atlanta and Richmond, or newly established industrial centers like Birmingham. But what's interesting to me is how not only did particularly minority enclaves or company housing exist among higher levels of pollution and filth, disease, industrial contamination, but the white public's representation of those conditions attached a persistent stigma both to people and place in these neighborhoods. And so I'm I've started research for my second book project, which is tentatively titled The First White Flight, uh, (laughs) Industrial Pollution and Racialized Landscapes in the New South. Um, Because, you know, living and working in Birmingham for so long, um, you see sort of the 19th century roots of the racialized landscapes of the city, many of which had the patterns of which had been set long before civil rights. Right. So rediscovering the 19th century roots of white flight in southern cities, linking it to environmental racism, which is a trend that we often associate with the 20th century, 
And so um, I would argue that industrial pollution caused the cementing of an urban black suburban white dynamic based on distinct land use patterns long before the civil rights era in the South. And I think that particularly in urban areas, African-Americans often experienced their second-class citizenship through the physical environment in which they lived. Well, that's a thrilling project. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) That is all the time we have today on New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I've been speaking with Dr. Erin Stewart-Malden about her brand new exceptional book, Unredeemed Land, an environmental history of civil war and emancipation in the Cotton South. Go get your copy now from Oxford University Press. And Erin, thanks again for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me.